We're taking our Bibles, we'll head over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3 to get started. While you're doing that, let me just get your minds going. Name something you eat along with crackers. Cheese is going to be up there. What else? Peanut butter. Jelly is not going to be up there. Soup's going to be up there. Anything else? Okay, here's what they got. Sliced meat, chili, peanut butter, cheese, number one with soup. Name something you do to unwind in the evening. Reed is going to be up there. Uh, TV, movie is going to be up there. What's that? Music is not going to be up there. Reed is, we mentioned already. Anything else? They have, they have this. They have work in the yard or garden. No, no, no. The, the work, the, no. Here we go. Meditate. Just sit quietly and meditate. That's not relaxing. Here we, playing video games, playing board games, play on the phone. And number one was read. Name a reason why somebody might get a traffic ticket. Anybody speaking from experience on this one? Besides me? Okay. Jaywalking is not going to be there. The, the what? Red light is going to be up there. Not parking. The stop sign is going to be up there. What's that? Texting or looking at the cell phone. You are not speaking from experience, are you? You don't have one, so okay. Your wife hasn't been. You, you don't look. You've not been. You've not gotten a ticket for cell phone driving, right? You just got yours last week, so beware this week. That's what's going to happen. Here's what they say: using a cell phone while driving, not fully stop at a stop sign, going through a red light, not using turn signals, honking, honking repeatedly, okay, and speeding. Must be in the cities. Name something kids hate. Work. <laughs> Broccoli is going to be up there. Uh, you guys covered most all of them. Saving money, doing homework, going to school, chores, and number one was broccoli. This one, this one is um, not by order. Names things that show society is getting really bad. Uh, events that are going on or some things that are happening. The TV programs? I am not so sure. I'm not so sure I'm convinced that the Republicans are any better. Okay. Uh, what else? What's that? The immorality? Anything else that's happening in society? Okay. Emphasis on political correctness of never offending anyone. Is that driving anybody else nuts? Okay. Number of single-parent families are going up. Opioid use is an epidemic. Uh, abortions, crime is going up. This one just reveals our society, this whole issue. Based on Romans 1, this is a huge issue. Because Romans 1 talks about when people, when God gives people over... The first sin that's mentioned is this one, that God gets disgusted with the society. We're going to look at that in a few minutes. Let me finish out our other topic, first of all. If you haven't been with us, what we've been talking about is Bible difficulties, and we've been covering a number of things based on this passage. First Peter chapter 3, where he makes this comment, 
where she says, But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, whereas they speak evil of you as evil do- as of an evildoer, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you for your good lifestyle in Christ. He's talking to believers that in that day were facing criticism, opposition, even persecution for their faith. They were being downgraded. They were being, they were being put down a, a lot. And so he says, I want you to remain true to the faith, even though it's becoming unpopular. They were not to fear their critics or fear the challenges that were coming, but they were to remain faithful. They were to give an answer, an apologia, a defense of why they believe what they believe, even though it's not popular. But when they're giving this defense, they're not to be condescending. They're not to be out of control, not vengeful or demeaning, but rather be very careful that they do it with the spirit of meekness. As well, they were to live consistently with what they were believing and what they were saying they believed, so as to live a godly lifestyle that others might consider them to be so convicting that they would start trying to tear them down in other areas. My question to you is this. Do we live in a day when Christianity is being questioned criticized, and attacked. Yes, and it's growing, okay, and even in our culture. How are we to respond? The same way. The same way. We're to be living consistently, not going down in our standards, but maintaining godly standards and learning how to give a defense for what we believe. So we've been talking for the last few months about how you can answer a number of different issues that come up about defending your faith as well as even some of the social issues, which we're in this second half of what we're talking about. We're dealing with issues. Like today, we're going to finish out the one that... um, deals with basically government, dealt with the idea of warfare. It's uh, impugning God in this whole discussion that people will say, well, if God is so good, why did God have people killed? Why did God wipe out the Canaanites? Why did God, why does God even allow war to happen? Or is it okay? This becomes a question that some of you are getting into discussions on. Should a Christian be involved in military? Should, a, should the police oppose evil? That is a pretty hot topic right now. Okay, For those who say we should defund police, I think they're starting to rethink that one, aren't they? Uh, in our home state where I grew up in Minnesota, it is very interesting that there was, that was one of the hubs of two years ago with all the activity. And the city council of St. Paul decided that they would defund the police. And so they defunded the police, but then they had threats against them uh, that they felt they were unsafe in their neighborhood. So the, state, the city now pays for each one of the city council members to have their own personal bodyguards. So you defund the police, and then you put on the taxpayers to protect them. Makes no sense. And so, but it's a topic that we need to be able to answer from the Bible. What does the Bible say about these things? And especially in Christian realm, that there's a lot of discussion that's going on with this idea of resist not evil, but turn the other cheek. Where a number of people are saying, well, then what we should do is we should be tolerant and loving towards people. And even in the, in the criminal element, we shouldn't be resisting evil. Is that what Jesus meant? So we talked about that, and we discussed a lot of things. And where we talked about, if you uh, hadn't been with us, is we started with this text, Thou shalt not kill. 
And some say, well, that's an inconsistency. But if you look at the wording that is used in the Hebrew as well as the context, basically what he is is saying, thou shalt not murder. He's not saying that all killing is murder, which it is not. Capital punishment is not murder, according to scriptures. You may think it is, but according to scriptures, God said it is not. Self-defense is not murder. Okay, you might feel that it is, but if you study the scriptures, that is not the case. Warfare, that is justified warfare, to protect the innocent, you know, protect property and personage, you, you say, well, is that thou shalt not kill? No, that's not the same thing. And so we talked about that. We talked about this idea that God did require the taking of life in multiple situations. And we looked at those situations. You can get the previous studies on that. I'm not going to repeat all the material. But even in self-defense, that from Exodus, where it talks about if somebody breaks in and you take their life, you shall not have to forfeit your own life. And in that context, he talks about if they were coming to take your property, not your life. So you can even defend your property according to the Word of God. Yet there are many who would say today that we as Christians, <clears throat> we should live in a way that, that uh, is loving and gracious and basically roll over. And uh, one of the arguments that is used for it is Jesus was a pacifist. Jesus did not defend himself. Um, Jesus allowed himself <clears throat> to be brutalized, though he could have called 10,000 angels. Therefore, that example to us is we should not defend ourselves. Well, Jesus, is gi Jesus giving his life was a whole different purpose than you defending your family. Okay, Jesus gave his life, yeah, for us, for salvation. A totally different element. And uh, so here's what some of the discussion, if you go and you study it, go on the internet and start getting articles, you'll find that these are the passages and the arguments given, uh, why Jesus was pacifistic, that he said, turn the other cheek, put up your sword, my kingdom is not of this world, if it were, my servants would fight, love your enemies. Therefore, Jesus says, you shouldn't resist evil at any time or any shape or any form. And uh, our response is basically this. Jesus supported human government. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and unto God. Okay. And Jesus did follow authorities except for civil authorities of his day, except for they demand, where they demanded that he would violate the word of God. Um, and so Jesus supported government. And government has already been declared through the Old Testament. And Jesus supported the law. He didn't come to, he didn't come to um, uh, what was the word that we used this week in our Bible study? He did not come to destroy, to tear down, to pull it all apart. He came to fulfill the law. Well, the law talked about government having the right and responsibility to deal with those who were creating harm or violence in the society. And so Jesus supported human government. Jesus did not condemn the use of violence to punish somebody who hurt children. Even when he said that somebody who hurt a child, you know, he compared it to say they should have a millstone and thrown into the deeps, okay? Um, Jesus uh, indicated that self-defense was just logical, was the practical when he uses the parable, that if somebody were to break in the house, the first thing they have to do is they have to disarm the defender of the house. 
And so that's just a common sense action in his mind. His own disciples did have swords. There's two passages in Luke where one is, you know, do not, you know, don't take swords. But then after he is leaving and he is giving his parting comments and after the resurrection and sending them out, then he tells them, go and buy swords. And so you, you don't take just one verse. Study the whole context while he was with them. Don't take a sword, which makes perfect sense because in the setting of the one time where he's saying, don't take swords with us, it is just preceding when they're going towards Gethsemane. What happened in Gethsemane with a sword? Did Peter make a mistake? Yeah. Okay. But then afterwards, what happens is that Jesus says, okay, now I want you to take swords with you since he is going to be leaving and they are going to have to, even when they're going out and giving out the gospel, they may need to defend themselves. Jesus is, this idea that Jesus is just pacifistic, he is described as coming again with fiery vengeance. He is described as being a warrior on a horse and, and leading an entire army. So it's inconsistent to say that he was a pacifist. We talked about this one verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. Resist not evil, I say unto you, you know, turn the other cheek. In the context of who he's talking to on the Sermon on the Mount, if you've been with us on Wednesdays during the Bible studies that we've been doing, we're tackling this. We're going to get into this one text in about three weeks or so. But what happens is in this text, he's talking to Jewish people. And in the Jewish society, they had, they had taken it upon themselves to even hate their enemies. And to be vindictive and vengeful, they called them blood laws. If somebody smacked you, you smack them back twice. Okay, even harder. Okay, uh, was the concept. And what Jesus is dealing with is a society that was very oriented. When the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth of the law was given, that wasn't given for personal attacks and revenge. But if you look at the context of the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth throughout the law, that was the civil government, uh, whether it be the, the leaders at the gate of the city. That's how that, the punishment that they meted out, not you personally, but the society meted out was supposed to be equal uh, to the offense that was committed. And so if you took somebody's animal, you had to restore that animal, plus there was a penalty for it. If you injured somebody, you were going to have to take care of them, or the punishment would be equal, and that was the whole idea. Now, the Jews, uh, they, they elevated that to saying, that's okay, you can do it on a personal basis. And Jesus is talking on a personal basis, no revenge, no revenge. Okay, don't take, you know, uh, don't seek to hurt somebody else. Learn to take it. And for disciples, we understand that. There's going to be a time. That's Pastor Art's series that he got into on First Peter, that when, the, when we are facing persecution, we're not to be vindictive. We're supposed to, if it's for our faith, we're supposed to submit to the authorities. Uh, and even, even we're supposed to take without action or revenge even some of the persecution, the ridicule, the mocking that comes because of our faith, our faith living. This agrees with other passages that talk about vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, not ours. 
on a personal basis. And so the idea that resist not evil is never to oppose evil, then what is, why does he tell the church in Matthew 18, if somebody is committing sin and they are violating and destroying the testimony of Jesus Christ, if we're not supposed to resist evil, then why does he tell us to put somebody out of a church? Why does he tell parents that they're supposed to resist the evil in their children by corporal punishment, discipline of some sort? It makes no sense to to accuse Jesus of this, to twist his words. So we have that response. Let's do this one, okay? Love your enemies. How, How do you interpret this? Love your enemies means don't defend yourself. What does he mean by this? What's that? Okay. Okay. He even does that where John was preaching. And in John's comments, sorry, whoever guitar was hidden here. Um, John's comments that, uh, remember, said, if somebody asks you to go mile, do what? Okay. They ask you for your coat. Give them that. And so this, that's the response. Is, is, we're going back to that same type of idea of loving your enemies means if somebody is antagonistic to you, heap coals of fire upon their head. Do good to them. Do good is the idea. It's not the idea that, okay, um, I will love the person who breaks in my house so much so that I will not defend my family. I love them more than I love my family? Okay, is that what he is advocating? No, not at all. This makes no sense. Besides, let's follow this through. Love does not eradicate justice. Does that make sense? Okay, Uh, let me see if I can illustrate. Should we say to the courts in the United States, this person who is a serial rapist, we should love them so much that we will not enact justice. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Does God love the world? Does he also carry out justice? Okay. So his love does not eradicate justice. Neither should it in our case, okay, that, uh, that we would say, okay, we love so much that we overlook sin. Well, you know there are so many passages that contradict that and make that just foolish. So the idea is rather that we pray for our enemies, we seek to good, do good to them, but that doesn't mean we just give in to all evil and all those situations. Jesus said... My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should be delivered. But now my kingdom is not from here. What is he talking about here? Some would say that means no self-defense, no be total pacifism. What's this passage mean? I don't think it has anything to do with pacifism, personally. I think what he's talking about is... Something that has been done through history, even by Christians, that is wrong. And when I say Christians, I'm talking about the big umbrella of Christendom, not born-again believers. Have there been people who have tried to promote Christianity with the sword? Has that happened historically? Yes. Do we even reap some of the the effects of it today? Yes. 
Yes. And so what he's talking about is not using violence or weapons to force people into belief in Jesus Christ or to, in this sense, uh, promote the kingdom of God upon the earth. Are there religions who do this even today? Yes. Okay. Have Christians done it during the Middle Ages? Oh, sure. Sure. There guilt. When I say Christians, I'm talking again the big realm of the Christian work. Um, and so that's what he's dealing with is not the idea that our um, uh, pacifism, but rather let's not use the sword to make everybody a believer, you know, by threat of life. This one, well, let's wrap up. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord. This verse I found very interesting that several groups who were pacifists used this verse to say that we should trust the Lord and never trust in civil government or personal self-defense or anything. We, we, do, we need to trust the Lord. Anybody want to create a response off based on this verse? We found it in which book? Psalms. You want to guess who wrote this passage? How does this fit into David's life? Did David ever use weapons? Uh, any illustration? <laughs> the one he's most famous for. David and Goliath. Okay. Did, it, he, did he trust in the Lord while using weapon? Yeah, he did. Did he, his armies, did he ever set up armies? Sure. Okay. Did he, did he, um, did he have a, a system where they, they protected the people of Israel? Did he ever protect the, the people by using methods of warfare? Sure, even before he was the king. Remember his 600? They were defending the Israelites from the Philistines. <clears throat> and uh, he was doing this, if you remember, even uh, in an underground tactic. But he was using warfare to defend. So how does David say, trust in chariots and summon horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord. What's that? That's the key idea, right? Some will trust in weapons and weapons alone, but we're going to, our ultimate trust is, doesn't, this, this passage does not mean disarmament. You know, it's written by a guy who armed his nation to the hilt. And so it's basically, even though while we are... Um, the, the colonialists had a, had a comment that they were, during the Revolutionary War, a little statement. They said that basically, trust in God, but keep your powder dry. Does that make sense? Okay, so we trust, but we still use the, the concepts. So you have all this. Here was our, here's our conclusions. We can talk about it if you want to talk about it personally later. Pacifism is not what the Bible demands of believers. Murder is always wrong and punishable. Believers should never seek to be vengeful. Believers should never use the sword to accomplish God's kingdom work today. Self-defense is permissible. Just wars against evil are approved by the Lord. Military service is permissible. Police are good. They should be commended. And we should be thankful for them. Now, are there some corrupt officials? Yeah, we, we understand that because of human nature. But that doesn't mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater. 
Okay? Uh, resisting evil is permissible and promoted on occasions, but enduring personal attacks and accusations for the gospel's sake, when it comes because of your faith, we are encouraged not to be vengeful and just uh, especially uh, trust the Lord in those times. Um, I'm going to pass through this one just for sake of time this morning. Let's, uh, let's talk about this one, okay? What is the... Bi- I, I got to tell you, this, this is me personally. I feel like a fool talking about this. That's my initial reaction. Why do I have to take the time to discuss this? It is so self-evident. But I, I, wanna, I want you to be able to answer wisely. And our verses being used to promote this whole concept. Are clergy and churches getting on the bandwagon and saying that this is permissible? Yes, yes. So let's just start with this discussion. I will not get through the notes today. Okay? And we'll deal with it more and it'll, it'll take us a couple of weeks. Um, would you agree with this? The promotion of the... I, I don't even remember all the terms, but the, the whole lifestyle is quite pronounced in our society. Okay, um, becoming very common on TV. Commercials. Okay, celebrated. That's a better word. Okay, um, my sister-in-law worked for a major health firm that has nationwide offices, and she was in their personnel department. And she said two years ago when she was traveling around the nation for the last few years, um, she said that what happened in their major firm that brought her to the point of, I'm retiring, I'm out of here, was that they had these business um, uh, newsletters, the best way I can describe it, that they would send to all the offices for the last few years. They would come out of her office. And typically, these newsletters would talk about how you as a manager could improve the, work, the workspace. Or they would talk about different dealing with different issues. They got a new chairman of the board that came in who uh, came out of San Francisco. And why do some of you respond to that? Okay. <laughs> came in and he said, we want to change the face of our company. The first thing that they changed was the newsletter. The newsletter became, a, um, a, I, I would call it a, a propaganda sheet. But in the newsletter, they changed it and they started now, uh, instead of talking about workspace environment improvement, they started highlighting stories of individuals who were brave, heroic, outstanding citizens. Guess what? For the 12 newsletters that, that came out talking about that, guess what they, they highlighted? Somebody who was either came out of the closet or somebody who did transgender. And the whole article, and then, and then what it talked about, the rest of it was how you need to make a workplace environment where everyone feels safe and secure. It's interesting how these groups use terms that you and I would agree with this. We want the workspace to be safe. But if we don't agree with the morality that's put, what's that that setting us for? That we are the unsafe people. That we are harmful. And so um, they they asked, when she complained about it, they said, well, either you get on board or... You may want to take an early retirement. 
And she said, so several of her uh, born-again friends in the company, they thought this is going downhill, so they took the retirement. And so we know that TV programming, the government has adopted laws and practices promoting this lifestyle. You know that that's true. Okay, you know that this has happened. Same-sex marriages are legalized in most every state. I want to develop this a little bit more. 2004, Massachusetts was the first state to legalize same-sex marriages. Then it goes 2008. All of these states legalized same-sex marriages. In all of those states, it wasn't by vote. It was judicial rulings. Judges made it legal. Okay? Or, you know, some form of bench of judges. 2012, these states were the first ones to put it on a ballot, and it won by popular vote. Same-sex marriage. Thirteen states then adopted the Defense of Marriage Act, which prohibited same-sex marriages in their states. So all of a sudden, during this time period, we're getting more and more of this conflict, okay, happening socially. But then in 2012, the Supreme Court ruled, and I give you the ruling, same-sex marriages were legal throughout the United States based on the Equal Protection Clauses of the 14th Amendment. And as a result, that settled the issue. That states who adopted the idea of a Defense of Marriage Act, that it made no difference anymore. Supreme Court ruled. Now, on top of that, we have not only what's happening judicially and socially, but we have um, a new theology that even has a name to it. If you look it up and do some research, you are going to find... I told you two weeks ago, when I, before I was gone last week for a wedding, I told you that if you go online and talk about gay, what the Bible says about uh, homosexuality, it'll take you to the third page of Google before you'll find a conservative article. Um, every other article is going to talk about where the Bible promotes or allows for um, gay, gay lifestyle, homosexual lifestyle. It's called now gay revisionist theology. And that gay revisionist theology has affected many churches. Okay, that we just give you just a little bit of where some are and some aren't. And this is 2015. It's changed even since then. And so different denominations are picking up different ideas about it. Um, Pew Research, which is a popular uh, validated type of uh, company that does religious researching across the United States and it's often used for a lot of studies. They ask this question, do you favor or oppose same-sex marriages? I want to give you an idea of where we're going culturally. 2004, where the response was 60% strongly opposed. 30% were in favor. Okay, that's 2004. 2020, guess what? It's the opposite, okay? It became just the opposite, okay? Now, again, if people are being told this, the, the major areas where this is really being um, promoted is, this is the big issue right now in schools. Schools. It's huge in schools. Um, and so if, you, if the kids keep hearing it, what happens after 10 years? This is where we're at. This is where you're at. Um, and so among those, now in this 2020 survey, amongst those who have no religious affiliation, here was the response. 
79% were in favor of same-sex marriages. Now, those who went to church at least once a week, here was the response, only 40%. Then they asked, do you you identify yourself as an evangelical? See, they're going once a week could be any denomination. Now, evangelical are those who claim to be born again. Okay, evangelical born again are synonymous terms when they do these surveys. Those who are evangelical, supposedly born-again individuals who would be Bible-oriented, are you in favor of same-sex marriages? 29%. A third. A third of born-again people are saying, it's okay. It's okay. Um, Which says we have our work cut out for us. Parents, I, I don't know how to say this without sounding really really dumb. But at the same time, I'm glad I'm not raising kids right now. Amen. Okay, in that sense, you've got, a, you've got a tough spot, parents. You've got a tremendously tough spot. Uh, trying to make sure your kids understand truth and the Bible and not be swayed by the social structure around them. In 2021, ABC says that 70% of the Americans overall favor. And again, this is major news network, which is pro this, so I'm not sure if their figure is totally accurate. But all of it brings me back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. okay. <clears throat> In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's writing and he's talking about you know, what's going to happen in the future, in the future to when he's writing. So let's say he's writing around 65 to 70 A.D. And he says in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 4, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Then he tells us why this is so important. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their what? What's your Bible say? Okay, when, when, when we read this, we say it's talking about theology. No, it's not. Sound doctrine is just not about theology. It's behavior. Sound doctrine is behavior as well as belief. Because he makes this next comment, but after their own lust. They will heap to themselves teachers that do what? It says teachers having itching ears. It's the idea they'll tickle their ears. They'll make them feel good about their lusts. And he goes on, he says, And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and and turn to... What's your Bible read? Fables. Anybody have another rendering? What's that? Myths? Yeah, you know, things that aren't accurate. Um, what's that? Feelings. Feelings. Feelings? Okay. Is it, a, is it a mythical thing, untrue, to say I'm a dog? Okay, here's a teacher in the midst of, of the education system. And his response, I'm, I'm not mocking you at all. No. Okay. His response, well, if you feel that way, then you're a dog. Because in your environment, that's, all it takes. that's what it is. 
If I say I'm a dog, and if the teacher asks me a question, arf, 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 and I act that way, that teacher cannot, is not supposed to fail me because I'm not answering questions. That's in our county. Uh, those, those people who claim that they're an animal in the classroom, uh, um, they're called, the new term is, the furries, if you're unfamiliar with that. One of our folks was telling me that they, were, they had a kid's party going on that their business was hosting. And at the kid's party, one girl came in, and she had the cat ears on, and as she was there, she meowed the whole time. And when they came to putting out the cake, she ate like an animal. And she was shocked and said to the other kids, what's going on? Well, she's a cat. She's a cat. The kids weren't shocked by this because they're being exposed to this. One teacher in Chicago here two months ago was filling in the classroom just for the day. And this teacher was just filling in, old school type teacher was taking roll. And when they were taking roll, you know, is so-and-so here? And they heard some sound in the classroom and there wasn't a yes or here. And when it was all done, okay, so Michelle isn't here today. And they said, no, Michelle's over there. He says, oh, I didn't hear you, Michelle. And turned to the side, and Michelle went, meow. And he laughed. He says, what, what's going on? And the response was, she's a cat today. She's a cat. So that's how she's responding. She's a cat. His response was, did you bring your litter box with you? All the other kids started laughing. She ran out crying. Within minutes, the principal was back, and they were fired on the spot. Wow. That's, is that turning yourselves over to myths and fables? Okay, that's what, that's, and so what, how do we respond? What do we do? Here are the common arguments that are used. And we've got to be able to respond to the common arguments. But remember when we respond to the common arguments, let's not do it in a demeaning um, attitude. Um, let's do it with a spirit of grace and love, but firmness. Okay. Uh, number one, it's no one's business what people do with their own bodies. Uh, have you heard this discussed before? Uh, yeah, I just, I I told you before, I'm not against the vaccination. I'm not. I did it myself. Okay? My wife and I took it. But it just irritates me that you can't tell me what to do with my body unless it fits my agenda. Then I can tell you what to do with your body. But you can't tell me, and it's like, this, yeah. And I just think it's wrong that, to force people to, do, uh, to, to make a choice that, or force them to take the vaccination without personal choice. I just think it's wrong. Um, but this whole argument that it's my body. And by the way, I have run into this within our church quite a bit. It's my body. I can do with I, what I want. How do we respond from the Bible? If you're a believer, you are... Not your own. You are bought with the price. Okay? 
Our bodies are not our bodies. They are not. And by the way, let me add this to it. Your kids are not your kids. Okay? They belong to God. Now, I understand. I'm not doing the same thing the president would say that they belong to the community. Okay? Okay? Or the school. Or the school. Okay? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, God gave you those kids on loan. They belong to the Lord. And you are to be a steward, not the sovereign over your kids. You're to be the steward of training those kids. Uh, some of you would say, oh, great, they're not my kids. Somebody take them. Um, we, we don't want to go that far. Don't want to go that far. As long as two people love each other, it must be okay. By this logic, adultery is okay. By this logic, teen sex is okay. By this logic, polygamy is okay. By this logic, incest is okay. By this logic, bestiality is okay. By this logic, an adult having relationships with a child who doesn't know any better, it's okay. That's a dangerous logic. Dangerous. People are born this way and can't help it if they are gay tendencies. God made them that way. Um... I need to state the notes. Proponents, <laughs> proponents say this. They, proponents say this because they argue it's not a choice. Because if it's not a choice, then what? That's not sin. And I'm not responsible. Okay. I'm, I'm, because whose fault is it? By the way, does this sound like somebody in the Bible? Adam in the garden... What was his excuse? It's the woman you gave me, okay? So I have no choice in this matter. Okay, I'll use Adam's argument in, a, in another text, okay? For another, and, and this, is, this is an element that, that statistically is high. If there has been some type of abuse, the tendencies get higher, okay? If there's been some sexual abuse. It's not my fault that I'm gay. It's the relative that you allowed to abuse me. The same argument. There is great scientific debate over gay genes. Okay? And again, it's amazing how science is no longer science. Okay? Um, I mean, simple biology says a boy is, and a girl is a... That's, that's simple science. But even if... Let me, let me just give credence, credence for just a second. Even if there's a d- genetic disposition towards something, even if that's possible, then what are we saying? Are we saying that somebody that has a disposition towards violence should not be held accountable? Are we saying a disposition towards substance abuse, true or false? Some people can get drunk on less than other people can get drunk. Does that happen? That's true. That's a truism. Okay? Uh, Truism, culturally wise. The American Indians typically have 
a, uh, and it's shown scientifically within their blood that they respond quicker. Um, what word do I want to use? To, to substances, to alcohol, their disposition is they will be affected more so. Okay? Their tolerance level is less. Therefore, by that virtue, they're not responsible for drunkenness. Is that what we're saying? Are we saying that somebody whose uh, sexual libido is way up here and sexual drives vary? They, they, you know, they vary at different ages. They vary in, in different people. So the person who has this really high sexual drive, because that's part of his makeup, whatever he does to satisfy it, he's not responsible because that's his sexual drive. Is that what we're saying? Is that, is that what we're getting to? Okay. It is acceptable to most people today, therefore, this is okay. It is no longer viewed as wrong. Well, does that mean that people as a society determine what's right, what's wrong? Then who's our authority? We are. And we have to come back to the heart is deceitful and so sinners making standards, that's just not cool. Okay? These are popular. These are legal. Tell me if they're right. But it's legal. It's popular. Does it make it right? Not morally right before God. No, it's condemned in Scripture. Yes? Okay. What about this one? It's condemned in Scripture. What about this? It's condemned in Scripture. Is it popular in some communities? Is it tolerated in some communities? Okay, denying and cursing God. Yeah, again, feeling oriented. All of, none of this makes sense. They are only doing what is natural and makes them happy. That's the problem. They're doing what is natural to them. But on the flip side, it's very unnatural. Okay, and so it's just, the whole discussion is just, it's irritating. Let me, let me take it from a Bible point of view. We're going to, I have ten, ten reasons why homosexuality, and show you from scriptures why homosexuality is condemned in the scriptures. Ten reasons. But before I get to that, let me show you where the churches are today. Most churches and what they're teaching. Christians are called to love all people. Therefore, we should not oppose this whole gender issue. We're to love all people. My response to that is to oppose, condemn such... This is their comment. To oppose and condemn such practices is unloving towards gay people and causes unnecessary guilt, division, and self-esteem issues. So if somebody's going to have a self-esteem issue and they may consider suicide, we ought never to make them feel guilty about what they're doing. Whoa. Whoa. Preach the word, the time will come we looked at. In 1 Corinthians, anybody remember the setting of 1 Corinthians? Anybody remember the setting? The church is loving somebody within the church. 
lovingly saying, what you're doing, we're going to accept, we're going to have you here, we love you, and hopefully we're going to love you out of your sin. And so Paul writes to him and says, what is with you? What are you doing? Even the unsaved know that this is wrong. Do you remember what the wrong was? A man is a man is having a, a, a shacking up with his stepmother, his father's wife, and the church is saying, church as a group in Corinth is saying, you know, we're going to love you out of this sin. And Paul writes to him basically and says, are you nuts? Are you crazy? He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And he says, you've got to put this man out from amongst you. This is wrong. Even the world knows this is wrong. I mean, some of you, your eyebrows went high when I said he is shacking up with his stepmother or mother. And, and your response was, whoa, yeah. But the church was loving towards that. And so Paul writes him, and by the way, in Second in, uh, Chronicles 2, he writes and he says, hey, by the way, this man is repented, and now that he has repented, take him back, take him back. But, he, but repentance was the key. So the point is, the point is, love does not remain quiet when sin is happening. What does love do? It confronts, graciously confronts, Okay. Um, if you're a parent and your child is doing something that is wrong and harmful, a loving parent does what? They, they, they get in the way. They try to stop and restructure their child. Okay? If they do nothing, they're, the, in, in Proverbs, the question whether you really love your kid. Okay? The Bible does not speak in condemnation. This is, this is the promotion of it. The Bible does not speak in condemnation of homosexuality. Okay, give me, uh, give me a story. Okay, Sodom and Gomorrah. It is not homosexuality that's the problem there. That's not me. This is the argument. It's not homosexuality. He isn't condemning homosexuality. They're condemning bad practices of hospitality. That's the argument. That's the argument. <clears throat> or, or, this is, this is the second argument. What he is condemning is not a homosexual relationship that is consensual. What he was condemning is a non-consexual homosexual relationship. They were trying to, uh, their intent was to rape. It's not a homosexuality that, he's, that God was opposed to. It was rape. And so those are the two arguments. Um, gay revisionist theology has created new interpretations of several passages that have previously been clearly understood, where it talks about men have given up the, uh, the natural use of a woman. Well, that's not talking about homosexuality. What's it talking about? What's ta well, it's not talking about homosexuality, but what's it talking about? We don't know. Um, instead, passages that hint at condemning homosexual practices are actually a condemnation of selfish, unwanted gay sex and have no application to some mutually oriented same-sex relationship. So we change the, the interpretation totally. Jesus never personally spoke against homosexuality in the Gospels. True or false? False. 
Did he ever personally say something about it? Ah, in Matthew 19, he talks about a man and wife, but he's quoting Genesis. Did he ever personally say something like, thou shalt not commit homosexuality? He never did. He never, you can't find a quote. Okay, now watch the danger of this. This is coming from a viewpoint that the red letters are inspired, but the rest of it isn't. Okay? Do people do that? Yeah, be careful of this. The Gospels never claim to contain everything Jesus said or did. In fact, what do the Gospels say? If all that he said or did were to be written, all the books of the world could not contain it. Okay, number one. Number two, there are many topics Jesus never specifically mentioned but are widely understood as to be something he would never condone. Such as this, polygamy, incest, rape, spousal abuse, abuse of uh, uh, child molestation, drug abuse. He never mentioned them. Are you telling me Jesus therefore isn't against that? Uh, a little bit further. There are many religious topics Jesus never talked about. A lot of things that we say it comes from other scriptures. The spiritual gifts, priesthood of the believer, old man, new man, officers within the church. But we get them because of other scripture. Here's our point. The, the inspiration of scriptures is not to the red letters alone. Inspiration of scripture applies to all the word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable in doctrine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause, but I'll show you next week. Then, then, this one ticks me off. Then it suggested Jesus was gay. Know what passage? The disciple whom he loved lay his head upon his bosom. That was a homosexual relationship. Are you kidding me? You are going to run with that and say that the Son of God was gay? What's that? Yeah. I, I mean, just let me, I got to stop. Okay, I got to wake the person up next to you. Let's get ready for worship. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening.